Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics. How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. On today's episode, I speak with three men who have all experienced uh, adversity and transformation through integrating what is called their feminine into the whole of their being. I had so many wonderful men in my life take care of me and and teach me things and and mentor me, but uh, my experience was always this sort of like uh, sadness or dullness uh, that, that they were carrying in some way. Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast. I am your host, Luis Mujica. I was sick and depressed until I discovered that I could make music, and then my whole life transformed because I began learning how to listen more deeply. Listen to life, to the people around me, and to my body. And that's when I realized that the body speaks through sensations, and learning this new language meant relearning my body and mind. I soon healed myself of many chronic conditions and then began teaching others how to do so as well. Holistic Life Navigation combines nutrition, self-inquiry, and somatic experiencing to help you release stress and trauma just by listening to your own body. This podcast serves as a place to share my experiences as well as the experiences of many others who have healed and are healing through unique 
unorthodox and unusual ways. Your time to learn begins now. I've been so excited for this episode. I put out a call on Instagram, I think in October, maybe November, asking men to share their stories with me and um, be part of this little sacred circle I wanted to do today. And I got a bunch of amazing responses and um, made this group based on... um, based on the stories and based on the cultures and based on how I felt we would complement one another with different backgrounds but similar experiences. So I'm joined um, by a man named Daniel, a man named Michael, and a man named Todd. And we all talk about what it was like to grow up in a culture that, um, you know, essentially fetishized only one version of masculinity. And through that projection onto our, you know, developing minds, uh, we fell short because we didn't live up to that projected concept of what is masculine. And in my own experience, I found that integrating my feminine with my masculine just meant becoming a whole person. And I use these words, masculine and feminine, which are, you know, polarities and binaries and dualities, just to speak to the general public. Um, Personally, I don't use those words. And um, that might be because I was born androgynous, so I've been navigating the gray world for a long time. But I think it's because I just honor energy and I honor life without too much context and life without too much meaning attached to it. And it doesn't mean that life becomes dull. It means that I feel it more than I think it. So the meaning becomes felt. The sacredness becomes felt. The experience becomes felt versus judged or observed or... um, trying to figure it out. So for me, at this point in my life, I I don't, you know, again, I use these words to communicate to the public because these are words we've all agreed on and we understand. Um, and I use these words to conjure up my experience as a little boy growing up in this culture I didn't understand. But I find that when I get to the felt experience through the somatic work and through the somatic lifestyle, essentially, that I'm just moving through life in my body and I'm feeling energy and I'm seeing energy without a good or bad or any kind of duality attached to it. It's just energy moving. And uh, that's how I experience the masculine and feminine now. It's how energy moves and all different cultures have given the way those energy moves certain names, and I respect that. So I I hope you enjoy this beautiful episode that really, again, came to me from, from just the sentiment or the my experience that men don't tend to publicly talk about what it's like having to live up to being men. And part of, I think, dismantling a hyper- 
masculine or patriarchal society is for more men to kind of um, uh, relinquish the role that they were born into of this certain stereotype. And as we relinquish it and we integrate the whole, there's a lot more room for everything and everyone else. And I think that could do some serious collective cultural healing of um, a very, very long line and lineage of trauma that's been experienced by all people on this planet from internalizing um, these caricatures of masculinity. Um, there's a, a lyric from Joanna Newsom's song titled Go Long. And the lyric is, what a woman does is open doors. It is not a question of locking or unlocking. So this episode with these three beautiful men are our way of opening the doors. So women, men, non-binary, trans folks, everyone can just watch and listen and experience. And I'll, I'll say as well that this is almost two hours long. It did not feel like that. I could have bathed in this for much longer. Um, so if you need a little break, you know, take a break and come back. But uh, prepare yourself because it's a longer than usual episode. So I am sitting here with uh, Danny and Michael and Todd. And out of the, the many men that wrote to me, I was most inspired um, to have them share their stories so we could all kind of come together and hear it. I think what inspired me the most was men do a lot of uh, emotional healing work in closed spaces and in private spaces, but it's not very public. And I really wanted to make it more public. So I wanted my audience to be able to witness what it's like for men holding space for other men and how uh, tender and vulnerable and healing that can be and hopefully to encourage more of it. So I'm just simply going to start by introducing Danny and letting him tell us his story of how he got where he is. So welcome, Danny. Hi, everyone. I'm grateful to be here. Um, so yeah, I'm Danny. Uh, originally from England, a small town called Chesterfield, just outside of Sheffield. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot to say about, about this subject, but um, I guess a few of the things that were specific about my childhood that shaped it. Um, one was my father's relationship um, on lack of relationship, he was given away as a baby a few days old. Um, he was a child out of wedlock uh, and given away. And um, it wasn't until I was much older that I started to see the effects of that. But that impacted up my relationship with him um, in the way that he never reconciled that relationship. He never, he was never explained to him what happened. He was given, you know, adopted by a family. Um, which his father, his adoptive father, was older than him um, and didn't really want him. It was some kind of like a necessity that his family took him in. It wasn't even legal. It was just one of these things that happened. And, um, yeah, so he, like, never really understood what happened. 
and um, that impacted me in the way that he he never left, which I'm really grateful for. He never physically left me, but emotionally there was a, an abandonment from pretty much day dot, like from the moment I was born. Like I know this is something that I've kind of reflected on and spent time with and just just connected to as a father now and what happened. And um, this was specifically impactful for me around my relationship with other men as um, as I became more attached to men as I got older. And it probably happened from a younger age, but I remember having very intense relationships with, with, with men, um, like wanting to kind of get gain close to them and then also back in a way that's kind of this push-pull continually happening. And, um, you know, as an adult now looking back, I can see sort of like from a, uh, just just psychologically how, how that was created with with my father um, but yeah he just um, he just he couldn't be around me couldn't be around me like emotionally and physically it was really hard for him um, and I know now having spoken to him even though we haven't spoken about this specifically I can share talk to him about his childhood and about me that he just it just was too much of a too painful I'm his firstborn son, so there was a lot of that projection onto me. Um, and and so from a young age, I didn't really, you know, this was just a pattern in my life where I would forever be wanting to kind of have these, you know, kind of have these relationships and, and get very intense and then pull away and find a way to, like, sort of break off the, the, intense, the intensity of that relationship and back and forth and as I got older right you know there would be like managers and people who were like mentors to me it would be very typical for me to then see them you know subconsciously as this father figure um and uh yes there was a lot about his unreconciled stuff and I, I and I just took everything on myself like I just as a child you just absorb the feelings the emotions especially just just like my dad did he took on the the abandonment he took on the confusion he took on the just so much of of the responsibility of like this situation because he was just given away to this family and um by you know both his both his parents and so for me as myself I had that same responsibility where I was like trying to understand this and it wasn't again until I got older but now I can see the patterns um you know just talking to my to my dad about his adoptive father like he said that his to get his dad's attention, his father, adoptive father's attention, he would have to bring about beatings. Like he would have to literally be beaten to get attention from him. And he said that I enjoyed it because I got to spend time with him. And it's like, it's so bizarre to think about that. But that's kind of how, and of course, he was also playing out other fatherly stuff from his own, you know, that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, so it, that, and that just was kind of my story around men um, of a certain type of men, uh, you know, the, the mentor, the, the, the men that kind of um, had certain, probably an evasiveness about them, men that had an evasiveness as well. And, a, you know, they probably, I was pulled into want to be close to them. And it was just like a back and forth and um, very much that way. You know, I'm, I'm 41 now. So then I guess when very much into my 30s, before I started the healing stuff, which I'll get into later, this was very much part of my the dynamic and and um i have long term friendships with men from from the past 
but they've always they've, they've scarred with this 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 pattern of mine um yeah so that's um and just just how that affected me internally as well. So not just how it affected me externally with, with relationship with men, but just how that also then affected my own masculinity, my own to see myself, you know. And as I got older, to see my me see my face begin to look like my father's, and to see that in the mirror, and and, and wanting to reject that as well. Just, just so much of this that I saw in in, in myself. So that's kind of the. I think the thing that came to mind when, when Luis kind of reached out on, on, on social media and I thought about this, that was something that has been significant in my story uh, that I want to bring to the, to the circle today. So thank you. Thank you so much for that. I saw a lot of parallels, you know, for myself, which I'll talk about more later. That I, I appreciate that. I think the piece that, piece that really hit me from that was that, um, almost, not almost, but internalized self-hatred for your own masculinity. That was really interesting. I remember that feeling growing up where I didn't want to be anything like these men. And when I saw myself looking or being or feeling like them, it was really alarming. So that's, that's interesting. I want to talk more about that later. Um, Michael, would you share with us your story? Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you for starting us off, Danny, with that heartfelt share. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> so uh, my story, uh, I, I will guide it towards uh, the voice, and, and that's a, a good um, avenue to go down. So when I was growing up, I was um, always playing sports, just always playing sport, basketball, soccer, baseball. But I was also doing uh, musical theater and singing. And uh, I love these things too. I, we actually had a, a children's theater that was within walking distance from my house in uh, Lindenville, Vermont, growing up. And so I would, I would do that every summer. And when I, was a, when I was a kid, I had a high angelic voice. It was just very very beautiful soprano <laughs> and uh, uh, and I, I w- would uh, I would get the lead in musicals and I would get solos and uh, boys ensemble and and um, and I really enjoyed it I enjoyed being on stage and and I can remember having no fear and and just just being up there just totally comfortable and then um, around age 10, I gave it up. I gave it all up. And uh, what I remember is that there was a choice between baseball, like continuing on an all-star team or being in a musical. And um, there, there were two, twofold things. So, so one was the guys on the team would be calling me uh, a girl or gay. And that was the, the two sort of main ways that they were uh, uh, picking on me, bullying. And then the other thing was uh, that this year uh, in the musical theater, I did not get a lead role. And so that bumped up against um, sort of the achievement mindset and like, am I good enough? Am I uh, a star or a lead? And 
If not, then why am I doing this? Now, these things sort of merged together, and I just stopped singing in general. I stopped anything that was remotely feminine uh, in my boyhood mind. And uh, over the course of the years, my voice changed, and uh, I forgot how to sing. I just totally forgot. Uh, and I was terrified. I was terrified to speak in front of people. I remember reading an English class in high school and crying because of the, the sheer terror of uh, being in front of people. And so this is just such a drastic difference um, from, from early years. And so uh, fast forward, so there, there was just like a, a, an issue with confidence in that realm. You, and I was great at sports and I was very confident in, in that realm, but like everything else, it was just like something had shattered. And so I got to college and this was when I started to try to find myself in a different way. And I joined a fraternity and, uh, <laughs> and the fraternity. So I, I love the guys. I was very lucky to get into one of, uh, I went to an engineering school. And so it was a bunch of very smart uh, young men, um, but we were also uh, idiots in other ways. <laughs> and, and we got into the normal fraternity shenanigans that you get into. Um, but but overall, so, so I started drinking and partying, and I didn't do any of that in high school. And, and that started to create this persona of, like, I'm the party guy. And, uh, and that kept building. And so when I got out of college, um, it, it, it went even further because I moved to Georgia and I didn't know anyone. And I essentially created another persona um, from, uh, I read this book called The Game. And I don't know if anybody's out there, but uh, here's like a guy with low self-confidence, feeling alone, lonely, and so looking for women to be the outlet for that. And so I started to create a persona uh, around that to be able to, to talk to women more confidently. And um, and then that just became this whole other thing. And And... In the course of a few years, I had lost myself completely, and uh, couple, couple, so coupled with starting an entrepreneurial journey and that uh, starting to fail and like just hitting rock bottom, uh, but depression. So I've been depressed my whole life, and um, and it hit rock bottom around twenty-seven, and I would was very close to uh, leaping off of a balcony of a building and uh, and didn't. And then shortly thereafter, uh, Grace came in and introduced me to uh, life coaching. And uh, someone, uh, someone close to me said, you know, I think you'd make a good coach, Michael. And I, I was like, you're crazy because my life is a train wreck. <laughs> But I listened to him and I kept going and I joined that program and it changed me in a profound way because one, I was in a community of 20 people that loved me, even though I was a jerk sometimes, even though I was this and that, and they just loved me. And it, and it was totally transformative to be in that space of love uh, that had been missing for most, if not all of my life. And I moved to New York where that program was and 
uh, sure enough, uh, I started dating a Broadway actress. So she was in, <laughs> she was in the, the show Les Mis at the time. And so my first Broadway show ever was seeing her and Les Mis and, um, and it just, just blew my heart up. And I was like, yes, oh my God, what is this? And I remembered and I started taking singing lessons again. And, uh, uh, you, you know, just rediscovered that part of my soul and I, and I never stopped. And I mean, it's been quite the journey coming back into singing. I, I mean, like I, I talk to people about the voice quite a lot now, but when I started, I, I could only get myself to sing once a month with my teacher. And the rest of the time, it was like a pile of self-hate and why are you doing this? You're never going to be able to learn. You're tone deaf sort of things happening. But I kept going and I kept doing my coaching practice and being of service that way. And uh, and just this, this merging of creativity and... Uh, relationships right it was it's really relational based for me relationships and creativity and um uh you know finding grace and so over the years this continued and i created performance opportunities for men actually we had a couple cabarets in new york city which was awesome uh did a community theater production a west side story and, and just the singing kept going, kept going. And there's still a lot of stories of like, you suck, why are you doing this? And, uh, you know, you're never going to be good and da, 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 da. And I just kept doing it because I loved it and I loved it. And pretty soon I found, when I moved here, I found uh, Kirtan. And Kirtan is uh, a, a chanting practice, an ancient chanting practice. And I, I just uh, totally fell in love with it. And I started learning to play the harmonium and um, continued sharing that with as many people as I could and singing as much as I could and creating space for people to share their voice and share their art uh, without judgment, without needing to be great at it. And, uh, and seemed to have found a, a space within that uh, feels very me. <laughs> yeah me that's so beautiful thanks for that for that beginning of who you are or what you've been through i should say um so interesting just like with danny the parallels are profound because i i also was a singer and i am a singer but i was a singer when i was younger and same thing like this beautiful like soprano falsetto and then i shut it down you know, when I went through my my traumatic experiences with other boys, because anything that was slightly feminine and singing is slightly feminine, especially when you're a young boy, just seemed like too much of a danger. And then one day I was watching this Joni Mitchell documentary and like suddenly my body remembered how much I loved to sing. So when you were talking about the Broadway show and how your body remembered, I thought that was pretty profound. And I want to ask you more about that later. Thank you so much for sharing that. Todd. Todd, my dear friend. Yes, my I met, brother. <laughs> I, met, I met Todd way back when in uh, the East Village when I was working in a health food store. 
um, him and his his partner were one of the many gifts from when I worked there. So really happy to have you here. So tell us your story, my friend. Thank you. Uh, good morning. <clears throat> thank you guys for sharing. I, I'm honored to be in your company. I thank you. Um, as I said earlier, my story, I, I'm born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. I grew up in New York in the 70s. So, uh, you know, I saw the whole son of Sam thing and, and uh, the big blackout in New York and, and all of that stuff. So I was, I was there for that. I survived it. Um, I did have a happy childhood. You know, I had my mom and dad and uh, I was born to older parents. So that, you know, came with its, its own set of challenges. Uh, before I was born, uh, one of my sisters was killed. So my parents were very, well, actually, my mother was very uh, overbearing. She's still overbearing in, in her late 80s. She's still overbearing. Uh, the way my father, looking back, the way he handled it was to kind of disconnect and to push his emotion down. And so, you know, as a result, uh, he loved me, but he rarely said it. You know, his thing was, I'm going to show you in the way I provide. I'm going to show you in the lessons I give you. And, you know, at that time in the 70s and uh, coming off of the civil rights movements and, and things like that, my father was very proud. And um, later on, I found out that my father's father died. I never knew my grandfather. He died when my father was eight. He died from black lung disease. So he moved from the South to come up North to uh, take the subways. So my father had essentially no father and he did the best he could in uh, trying to connect with me, but I guess he, he didn't know how. And, uh, you know, it, it was interesting because he would shut down and my mother being the overbearing person she was and is would always, uh, exert her influence and her, her uh, opinions on me during my formative years. And growing up in the 70s, where I did in Brooklyn, uh, Bushwick area, which now is, is almost like Marvin Gardens. You know, back in the days, it wasn't like that. My brother was uh, heavily involved in gangs. So I grew up with a domineering mother who exerted her influence I had my father, who I saw as a great provider in a rock, and then I had my brother, who was always getting into things. So I had uh, them in the forefront, the forefront. But then the backdrop was what I saw around me and what I thought was uh, masculinity, which became feigned masculinity to me as I evolved. Um, so I, as a result of seeing violence went in went inward and uh like everyone here i was into the arts i was into being creative storyteller i uh, one of the things i do nowadays is write i'm a screenwriter uh i do act and uh you know i, I love to perform and i realized that growing up i was performing you know and as a black man in this country, sometimes we are forced to perform. And when I say perform, we have to uh, 
put on masks depending on where we go because we're judged by our appearance. And one common thread that I see with, with all of us here in this forum is that we were all judged based upon our appearance, whether it changed, whether we became uh, the image of our fathers or, you know, the contrast into what we see around us. So these things, they always uh, provided fertile ground for in, in, uh, internal conflict. And uh, I had to figure out, well, well what do I want to be? How do I want to act? How do I want to be seen? Because since I kept to myself, people were constantly pulling at me. Why don't you want to get down with this gang? Or why don't you want to do this? Why don't you act this way? And after a while, I was just like, freak it. I'm just going to do my own thing. And my own thing was to shut down and be quiet. And uh, coming from the family I come from, I'm also part Native American. Uh, mystical arts are a big part of my culture. And for all intents and purposes, some people will call me psychic. But the one thing I definitely am is an empath. So I'm almost an empath to a fault because someone could walk in the room and I immediately absorb their vibration. I immediately absorb their energy. And based upon what all of us have uh, been taught or seen over the years, when you feel when you're empathetic, that is a trait that's considered female. Whether or not that's true is clearly not true. But um, so society looks at you that way. If you are over-emotional, if you have a heightened sense of awareness or intuition, you're seen as, as female. Uh, so after a while, <laughs> I want to say I use that to my advantage because growing up and forming my identity as a man, I could identify with women and <laughs> unfortunately exploited, which I did in, in copious amounts growing up. But I realized that is in itself abusive. But um, to make a very long story short, I've constantly had to switch modalities in terms of how I want to be seen and who I actually am. Sometimes these things come into conflict, but I'm realizing that as a man, we... Uh, encompass all these things and we encompass none of these things and that's okay because we are all works in progress and there is no hard fast rule as to who we are and how we should be and unfortunately as men we're bombarded with this information which causes inner turmoil so um i guess that's it <laughs> it's beautiful tom you know, it's I one thing I'm feeling called to do is just ask like a couple simple questions for everyone based on everything I heard from everybody. There's just things coming up that are really powerful. You know, before we talk about like how we healed or are healing or how we turned this into a gift, there were just things coming up in everyone's story. So I want to ask, um, and I and I, I prefer to have them answer it again in order how we went, just so everyone can sit and feel and, and give. But the one thing that that came up when Todd was sharing was um, being raised by or around men that lacked their own 
masculine compass that didn't have the father to look up to, didn't have the society to look up to, didn't know how to integrate their own vulnerability and emotions and femininity to make a balanced self-state, let's say. So I'm just I'm curious to hear from each of you, like how did you experience that from the male role models or guardians or fathers or grandfathers in your family? What was that your experience first of all that these men lacked, you know, male a compass that said, "Oh, this is how a man is affectionate and tender and kind." And if so, what was that like for you? How did that show up? Um, so start with you, Danny. I just want to say thank you both, Michael and Todd, for sharing. There's a lot that I connect with and, and just uh, thank you for your vulnerability and for being here. Um, to Lewis, Lewis's question, um, I've been thinking about this one more recently about my father. Uh, as this, It's interesting as this podcast has been it's been nice that it's been like a, a few months in the making, you know, just in terms of like, because then it's given time to really reflect and spend time. Uh, and I think about my father uh, and growing up in the, in my hat, in the house with him. Um, he was interestingly enough, the safe one in my house. My mum had a lot of anger, especially towards my father for various reasons. Well, most of them I don't think were really reasonable, but you know, I understand the dynamic now. But he was, even though he wasn't necessarily available, uh, and didn't have the emotional capacity perhaps to um, have empathy for a young boy um, like myself, he, oh yeah, it was like this, I have this conflicted, like I always like, see him as this conflicted person, this very gentle kind of vulnerable person. If you didn't know he was looking, if you didn't, if you didn't know you were looking at him, I saw a vulnerable, beautiful man. Um, but if you kind of, if you became the center of attention, his guard would come up and become very much this typical masculine man. Um, so sometimes I just, when things were kind of hard at home around my mom or hard in other situations, I just liked to be sitting in the living room near him. And I, and I kind of knew not to necessarily engage with him because then it would, maybe I wouldn't get what I needed, but I got what I needed in his energy as a father, you know, he's gentle in many ways. Um, so he had that about him and that was really, that's been really important to me as a man to, to kind of have that. But yeah. Then when I, at the same time, when I, um, when I was in my feelings and needed, you know, uh, this, a, more, a man with more capacity, um, then I couldn't seek it in the way that I, you know, I needed to more directly. Um, and, and then, yeah. And then just examples of other men in my life, you know, it was just very typical, you know, I'm careful now as a father, you know, I, as, as a, as a nearly four year old boy, like careful about what I, what I see on TV, what I let him see on TV. And it's just, you know, like so many typical roles, so many, typical roles but so so many of these roles that we've come to to know what what should right what should be masculine I, you know so many messages in there so and i think the men around me all you know kind of put that mask on um and that's what i saw and, and, and it's so confusing as a as a man right when you see these masks that 
uh, maybe hard, maybe, you know, to Michael's point, maybe, you know, I was into sport too. Like, you know, these physical sports that you may play and just in these, you know, and it's very much about like winning and, and just, you know, man up and that kind of stuff. It's very confusing because that's not what you feel. That's not what I felt inside. And that's what I'm hearing and hear that from a lot of men that I don't just, that wasn't just me. Um, so I was very alone, in fact, with, with who I was. And um, it wasn't until I really, actually, it wasn't until I came to America where I met a lot more men in which um, were able to have these kind of conversations. Um, it's still the same as what I think in England with my friends. It's still much of a, the mask's still there. Um, I have to ask you a question because you're saying yeah. something really good, uh, very poignant. And I want Todd and Michael to consider this when you two share as well. Yeah. When you say, like, I love how you're saying capacity and the mask of masculinity. Like, I want to know how that felt in your body. And even right now, as you talk about it, like, how does it feel as a man when you're in the presence of another man and you have to, or you think you have to put on this mask? What's that like for you? Hmm. It feels like in my body that there's a shutdown. It's a shutdown. There's like, there's like a, the energy needs to change. You know, it's just like, you know, it can physically feel like a guard up, but it also feels like, yeah, like there's a, there's a checkpoint of like, every time I have to say something, I have to stop. There's like a, the energy doesn't flow out of me, like as I want it to. And it makes me, you know, it makes me, it's something I want to talk about is like in England, like I feel like every man who goes out and gets absolutely, you know, we call it pissed off our head, you know, it's just like literally so drunk on a Friday and Saturday night. I feel like they, they're wanting to get to that very point in which they, the guard drops. You kind of that, that, that after six beers or whatever it may be, and you see the guys with their arms around each other and they're saying stuff to each other. And we would, me and my friends would tell each other how much we love each other and all that kind of stuff. It's like we had to drink to get to that point and then, then we couldn't, we, we didn't have any other capacity. So it's almost like when uh, it's like, I almost have to like, when I'm you know, being sober, I had to like, the energy couldn't flow. But when I, when we would drink, the energy would be released and we would all be able to be ourselves, you know, in this intoxicated, stupid way sometimes. But, you know, um, so yeah, it's like energetically, Blocked, blocked. What do I have to say? And um, <clears throat> I really, I, that's that's exactly my experience somatically. Yeah. And I love what you said about the drinking. I think that's super important for everyone listening to consider. Um, yeah. I'm going to come back to you in a moment. Is that okay? Oh yeah. That was a beautiful share, Danny. Um, Michael, what what are your thoughts on all that? And I can reiterate if you'd like, but tell me where you're at. Yeah. Um, well, I just want to hit on the drinking point since that was a large part of, of my journey from, from 18 to 28. And, uh, um, I, I know, I know that experience of like the, that is freedom. And when I stopped drinking, then it was having to be with all of the emotions that come up and that still arise with other men. And sometimes for me, it's, it's literally a shaking, like my body is shaking in fear, trembling in fear. And, uh, and so this has to do uh, with violence in my younger years. So, um, 
I, I can I can remember um, sitting on my father's lap as he like rubs my head, like rubs my head and just feeling so relaxed and like loved and and he's just so gentle. And then the polar opposite of that uh, with, with, you know, being spanked or screamed at or whatever it is in, in, in like a really like short fuse sort of way. And, uh, and I can, that, that feels like a lot of my childhood was that sort of polarity. And the same thing with my friends. So I can also remember, um, I would never fight with people. I would never fight, uh, even though I, I did Taekwondo as a kid and I actually liked sparring and fighting, but with friends, there's, there's nothing there. And, uh, and, you know, the boys were violent at, at points in sports and stuff. And, uh, and it didn't make sense to me particularly, but, uh, so that was kind of ingrained in my body, right? Is men are not to be trusted. Men are scary. And, uh, and, and so that's the, the sort of visceral experience there. Um, as far as like role models are concerned, um, I look and, you know, where I grew up in Northern Vermont, it's kind of like uh, hick country, like we, we drive trucks and hunt and that kind of stuff. And <laughs> so there's, <laughs> that is the, the, the masculine that survives up there. Nothing else survives. Like there's no, there's nothing else because you're just in that little community, tiny little community, and there's a way of being a man. Um, and I and I will say that I I had so many wonderful men in my life take care of me and, and teach me things and, and mentor me. But uh, my experience was always this sort of like uh, sadness or dullness uh, that that they were carrying in some way. Uh, whether they were aware of it or not. And, you know, like, like Todd said, I very empathic, like feel everything uh, somatically. And, um, and it wasn't until uh, all the way, uh, you know, to the, to the life coach program at like 28 that I started to meet men that were in touch with their feelings and could share their vulnerability. In all of my journeys, everywhere, all over the world, like that—that that was when <laughs> I finally met some role models, and I just ate it up. My body just was like, "Ah, oh, yes, here we go!" And aliveness started to come back. That's how I, I really talk about it: aliveness. I love that. I, I, it's so interesting when you were saying that. What uh, I love the masculine that survived up there you know, just for all of us to digest in our bodies right now. Like, what was the masculine that survived? I mean, that's a very, like, poignant phrase because uh, in my town, you know, I grew up in southern Pennsylvania, which literally is like growing up in the south in, in America, like the East Coast South. Um, it was so racist and so misogynist and so homophobic. And there was I, like biracial, intersexual, bisexual, growing up in this cult. It was terrifying. So when you say like the masculine that survives, I'm like, I remember looking around trying to understand how to be those men because they were surviving. And the men like me were literally committing suicide. 
and being, you know, uh, forced out of town. And so it just kind of felt like that's not an option. And so when Danny was talking about the shutdown, like the checkpoint, I really appreciated that because I know that feeling of checkpoint, okay, am I making too much eye contact? Checkpoint, is my body language too open? I'm going to cross my arms. Like checkpoint, are we connecting too vulnerably? And in my town, if you were doing that, you were gay. Like it wasn't about even being sensitive. It was you're gay. And if you were gay in my town, you were better off dead. Like gay wasn't an option. So those checkpoints that Danny was talking about, and then that phrase, the masculine that survived, there there was no reference for what it looked like to be a vulnerable man in my entire childhood growing up. And that's that's profound. And so... I'm just really, it's amazing too. I don't know how y'all feel, but like in my body as we're talking, I'm feeling more connected to all of you. Like I'm feeling more comfortable. And I I forget that my body still has a thing when I'm about to talk to men, especially a group of men that says like, I have to suss this out first to make sure it's okay to go deep. And so the more everyone's opening and your hearts are opening, you're all so gentle and sweet. It's just my body's settling more. And um I, I thank you all for bringing yourselves in that way. Um, Todd, I'd love to hear you know, your idea of this mask of masculinity, how that feels in your body, how it felt especially growing up in Brooklyn as a black man in the 70s. Fa- uh, brothers in a gang, that's intense. Like, what was, <laughs> how, how did that feel for you? Um, it, it was interesting. The... Uh... Well, let, let me say this. Um, similar to to you, Michael, and I don't know, uh, Danny, if, if you've practiced, but I, I am a martial artist. Uh, and I, I, at this point, I mean, God, I'll, I'll be 49 next month. So I, I've been studying for close to 30 years. Uh, and there's a thing about awareness and uh assessing situations kind of on the fly and that that was a skill that I I had to learn to survive growing up where I did in the 70s and I guess you know they kind of call it street smarts so you have to uh it's almost like imagining yourself in a war or living in a war zone you have to assess everyone men and women on the fly are they here to harm me you know what I mean and you have to make that decision Right then and there, you have to uh, to be aware and open enough spiritually to to figure this out quickly. So it is something that I do with men, and uh, you know we all have the whole laundry list of things that we can go down. Okay, guys like sports, guys like you know this, guys like cars, and I was one of those guys who didn't like any of that. <laughs> I didn't like any of it, you know? So guys were like, oh my God, did you watch the basketball game last night? No. And then you get the whole, what's wrong with you? Hey, did you watch the ba- No. What's wrong with you? Hey, did you? No. Oh, you must be gay. Well, you know. And then me, <laughs> being a guy, and well, you could ask your sister, but see that that's 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 something else. You know what I mean? That that's a whole uh, 
another level when it comes to being a man, with how you have to check other men. And sometimes you don't want to go through that. You know what I mean? And all of us here in this forum, we're evolved men. We are evolving as evidenced by this forum. But my father was, for all intents and purposes, my primary role model in terms of being a man. And the one thing that I really learned from my father that I appreciated was stillness. Because my father, when you talk about assessments, he's someone that would be in a situation and take a moment to assess variables. My father was heavy into mathematics. He loved math. And I would see him just do equations all day. My father worked for the um, New York City transit system. He was a motorman, so he was a train operator, but he loved math. He loved to draw. So my mother is very reactionary. So I'd see those two get into it, and my father would just center, think, and then say what he needed to say. And that was something that I always... To this day, I aspire to because, again, my mother having been the influence that she was and is, I became reactionary, you know, and my father would say, hey, just take a minute. Don't get so upset. Think about what's going on. Think about what you're going to say. Think about what you're going to do, you know, and... um. You know, there there were times when I was bonding with my dad and we would be looking at sports. You know what I mean? I'd just kind of be there. You know, you just want to be in 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 the company of your dad. And I remember saying, wow, you know, I, I don't I don't quite remember what it was. It was some type of major sporting event, maybe some basketball, something, but I remember being affected by looking at the losing team and the emotion that was coming out. And I was like, wow, they're really taking it hard. And my father said to me, somebody has to win and somebody has to lose. There's, there's no in between here. This is, this is the sport. This is what happens. But I took that lesson And as a man, I'm realizing, well, depends on how you look at it. You know, you may have lost this event, but if you've grown as a result, did you really lose? You know, and uh, I always always took that from my dad in terms of of the role uh, and his image, because it definitely came in, in stark contrast with what I saw around me. And maybe that was, maybe he didn't realize the, uh, how profound that statement was. Because since my father didn't have his dad growing up, maybe his, maybe that was just the, the, the concept of the realized that, the um, concept of the realization, excuse me, that he had formed that this is how you survive this, this thing called life. You either go this way or you go this way. You know, he wasn't really into uh, 
gray areas. You know, I think that he was very into absolutes and that could be a result of the mathematics and binary numbers and all that stuff. But I find that, that, uh, as men, it's important for us to find the gray area. There is no right or wrong, you know, things change. I really, I really appreciate that. I, it's when you said the gray area, you know, I was already thinking of a question I wanted to ask all of you. And the, the gray area is something that interests me with this question. Um, it's, it's a two-part question. And so the first part is, did, were you afraid you were gay at any point because you were this sensitive, um, let's say more feminine, more vulnerable man in comparison to your peers? Did you have that fear? And yes or no? And if, if not, or if so, why are we so afraid of being gay? Like, I want to know where all of us here are from a different culture, which I really like. I wanted to have it spread out so I could understand why from all different parts of the world is there this root fear within men of vulnerability, femininity, feeling, sensation equals gay? And why are we so afraid of being gay? So I'm really curious about that. So uh, Danny, I'd love for you to, to share first. Um, never thought about the question about whether I was afraid of being gay but it was a yeah homophobia and and sexuality was a big thing it's still a huge problem in england amongst men there's just just like the i just see it all the time you know um here all the time um i think i've never questioned my sexuality um in terms of my track i mean if i'm defining it by you know who what, how, what I'm attracted, who I'm attracted to, but I th- that was my initial kind of response when you asked that. But then I was like, oh, but I think there was a there was a uh, a fear of of okay, I don't think I'm gay, but maybe I'm going to have to be kind of you know like I, you know because that's what I that's who, you know that's that's what. I am in this way, right? Maybe I am in this way, this other way. Um, yeah, and I and I think the. I remember having a you know coming to New York City. I said earlier that you know coming to America, I was able to meet men that were more vulnerable. I think luckily I came to New York, right? So there's much more potential to 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 come to meet people who have. Uh, yeah, who have been exposed to difference in multiple ways and, and have many different mirrors in their lives. Um, but I remember having a conversation with a, a lesbian friend of mine and just talking about homophobia and how we kind of in that moment agreed that it was a, more of a sort of a anti-female, anti-feminine kind of belief than it is a you know a homophobia thing. Like it's more a rejection of the feminine and it is a rejection of actual gay people or, you know. Um, and uh, I'm sure it's not as simple as that, but it feels like there's, there's a big part of it, the rejection, the, the fear of, the, of, the, of that, of the, what we typically call feminine. And I think just, just a, a level of, yeah, as we've discussed already, like a toxic masculinity, just a, just a misunderstanding of masculinity and almost a fear of being emasculated, like a fear of losing our masculinity 
if we engage, if we if we develop, embrace, integrate some feminine elements into our lives, um, and yeah, and I just think this is obviously a huge topic, but that I think feeds into a lot of the misogyny and all kinds of stuff. Um, so that that's kind of what comes up for me. Really appreciate that insight. Definitely, and I, especially when you said um, there was no a question, there was no question of your actual physical attraction, but there was that question of I have to be gay in this way. I totally get that. I think that's really interesting. How about you, Michael? What's your experience with that? The fear of it and the internalized identity because kids were calling you gay. You said, "Yeah." So I, I feel like God has kind of set me up to be a little bit of an expert in this area. Um, in this one question. So interesting thing. Uh, So as a kid being called gay, um, part of that was that I had a best friend uh, that we were just inseparable, like just so, so loving and connected and there for each other and never any violence and and just there. And and my experience was that people were jealous of that the other boys were just super jealous of that. And so it was just, that was the thing that they would target. Um, and personally, I never felt any question of, of my sexuality. Then you know, it was just like, no, like, no, like I like women. And it was very clear. And, um, and so there, there was this very, uh, uh, you know, anger, feeling unseen, feeling unloved, like that, all of that from that experience. Now, fast forward uh, to, to when I start to actually meet uh, men that are in touch with their feelings and everything. And in, in, the, um, in the coach training program, there, there were a lot of gay men there or bi men. And, and so my world started to expand. Uh, and, and I'd never been close with any gay, bisexual, and any other uh, kinds of men. And so uh, so developing friendships with them and being introduced into their community, and uh, I had softened significantly so much. And then I started loving Broadway, which, I mean, there's so many gay men that love Broadway. <laughs> and we connected on that. We loved that. So it was, we were singing songs together and all this stuff. And the, there was even a, uh, there was a predominantly gay bar in New York City um, I'm forgetting the name right now, Mary's or, or something like this, but they, all they do is sing Broadway show tunes. And Mary's crisis. Mary's crisis. That's I it. was a yeah. bar back there. You were? Oh, yeah. so good. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I would go there and, um, everyone thought I was gay, obviously, you know, as everyone there was. And, and so I, my friend's, over the years, and one of them still that I talk to all the time still thinks I'm going to come out at some point. He's he's just waiting for it, and so there is some part that's like, is that going to happen? Is that going to ch-? like? So also in the awakening process, like everything starts to fall away. Like anything that you think is is foundational and tr- true forever is not. It's not. You have no idea. You have no idea. So. Uh, but there, but there is a fear of going there. Like I can still, I can sense that if that's, if that's to happen, then, uh, essentially you're, you're facing a whole shit ton of conditioning, uh, for men. 
that it's not okay, that it's bad, you're less than, like, whatever it is. And, and there's still so much bigotry out there, you know. Uh, so um, I, I would assume part of this is from uh, homosexual or bisexual men over the, the millennia being, uh, you know, killed or castrated or whatever the hell is happening, you know. This ancestral. I completely agree. I think the the ancestral there's like a there's like a somatic flinch, you know, that we all can feel as men who are targeted even as gay men. Like when you're growing up, like when when Todd said like I didn't I didn't watch the game, like oh you gay. Like I remember that being like the most consistent response that would happen in my male to male interactions throughout middle school and high school. Are you gay? Oh, you're gay. And it was the most, out of all the things that were said to me, which a lot of things were said to me, gay was the one that hurt the most. And that's so crazy, you know, because like you said, this there's this conditioning through, I mean, God, absolutely the millennia of men being killed, you know, for being, for being queer. Yeah. Or being gay. Go, go ahead, Michael, please. Yeah, so so I wanted to say, I, you know, part of the like being, um, you know, God setting me up in this way was that I used to run men's retreats, and and so I did that for for a couple of years in leadership programs and stuff. But the first retreat we we did it at a private island in Bermuda because my uh, business partner was from there, and so we just had it set up through that that country and. Um, uh, we invited guys and guys were just coming. And so we had 33 guys come and it was split predominantly 50, 50 of straight men and, uh, gay bisexual, uh, men. And, uh, it was not planned that way. That's just how it turned out. And that was the most profound part of the entire experience was, um, hearing the, uh, trauma that, both sides have experienced and sharing that and sharing the fears and talking about this in that environment that was split 50 50 was uh was was why it was so profound because it was it's usually just like one or in, in my experience in men's circles it's one or two uh, gay or bisexual men uh, that are in that circle and so there isn't a there isn't enough of a voice uh, of this other way of experiencing life and and so people got to ask all the quote-unquote stupid questions <laughs> that that actually create that bridge of understanding and compassion you know so it, it's 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 an it's clear to me that the that space needs to be available for for guys to have this conversation together that it's not just straight men having this conversation it's not just Gay men having this conversation, but we're actually in the same environment. I'm glad you said that because it, because um, to finish what I was saying, that that just informed, you know, what I wanted to say to that, which was, I, you know, I wasn't afraid of the other gay men. I was afraid of the straight men. So it's like you're safe with the gay men. You're safe with your subculture. It's like that other culture, the the more normative majority. That's the one you're not safe with. So to be in a group like you're saying, and I had I've gotten to experience that too. It's really healing, where you're with other heterosexual men, and they're like, 
I don't care that you're gay. It like washes this, this, this threat response out of your nervous system that says they will kill me if I'm gay. And that was for me at the core of it. It wasn't, I wasn't afraid of loving men. Like that didn't scare me. I was afraid of how men would treat me if I loved other men. And that was like the, the real base of it. And it's interesting what Danny had said about um, his lesbian friend talking about it representing this, this feminine, this misogyny, essentially, this like fear or hatred of the feminine. Um, because again, there is this in, in the, the world of our, our dualities and gender roles and such, it's like men take on the feminine role if they love another man. That's one way that we see it. And so when you said that about your, your friend, Danny, I found that to be insightful. Um, but I love that, that collective healing where you weave the others with the others and they come together and they realize, oh my God, we're okay with each other. Like talk about powerful healing. That's like my prayer for America is that all the others can just like not be afraid of each other anymore and we can just live differently, but with a lot of respect. So that's a perfect example of it in the micro. Todd, what, what are your thoughts on everything we're saying with the fear of gay and internalizing gay and such? I think it's, it's really important uh, everything that, that we're discussing here. And uh, growing up, I, I never I never questioned my, my sexuality. I didn't ever think I was gay. Um, what was very interesting is my surviving sister. Her best friend was gay. So to me, it was normal. You know what I mean? And, and, and uh, his name was John, but we all... We all nicknamed him Jingle Bells. So he was coming in the door, so here comes Jingle Bells. And it was no big deal. You know what I mean? And um, my father loved him. My brother loved him. So it was a blessing to me to see these, uh, let's just say, uh, archetypal, archetypical um, manly men and a gay man. You know, and then... You know, you take it a couple of steps further, um, black straight men and a black gay man in the 70s, you know, and growing up where I grew up, homophobia was rampant. You know what I mean? In the culture, you know, talking about the sports and everything like that. And um, yeah, I had a, a best friend growing up who, who actually is my best friend to this day. And we were like ham and eggs. And naturally, growing up in that uh, intolerant place at that time, we just had to be gay. Everybody knew we were gay. And um, <laughs> it, it, I can laugh about it now, but it's like, that's so silly. That, that's, it's ignorant. It is just seriously, seriously ignorant. And uh, it's a theme that kept popping up at different points in my life because uh, next door to my best friend, was uh his neighbor was gay and his neighbor was best friends with this girl i wanted to talk to so i said okay um i'm gonna get in with him because i want to know that girl that he's so tight with and uh people like why are you talking to that gay dude why are you talking to him you must be gay and then they saw that he kind of hooked us up they're like I'm like, yeah, guys, you know what I mean? You can talk to people without wanting something from them. 
You know what I mean? You could be around a man that's different and not necessarily want something from them. Maybe that's your fear. Maybe you're scared that this is going to rub off on you. Maybe you have something that you need to work out in yourself. And if you don't, I mean, if you do, that's fine. And if you don't, that's fine too. It sounds like a personal problem. You know what I mean? And this carried on into high school because as I had said, I, I started studying martial arts when I was in high school. And at that time, Jean-Claude Van Damme was the big thing. You know what I mean? And he has his rippling muscles that can do these splits and stuff like that. And I said, I want my kicks to, to look like his. He said he studied ballet. So what did I do? I started studying ballet. And so I'm in there with women and leotards and stuff like that. And all the guys, oh, you should join the basketball team. No, I'm doing ballet because I'm, you know, I'm a fighter or whatever like that. Well, you must be gay. Why don't you come and take a look at what I'm looking at in class every day? Next thing you know, here come guys signing up for ballet. You know what I mean? It's, it's asinine. It's asinine the pressures that we put on ourselves as men. And these are all societal uh, constraints and conditioning. You know what I mean? And uh, well, when you were saying I, too about it being a personal problem, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's the that's the real that's like the wisdom there. It's like when when all of us and anyone we know, it, when you are um, naturally, especially when we're kids, like before our sexuality comes in, and we're just so naturally uh, androgynous, and we're doing whatever just feels right. That could be sports, that could be ballet, that could be singing, you know, it could be braiding our hair and putting on makeup. Uh, it it confronts you know the fear of those other like masculine archetypes and what they're suppressing, and so when that projection comes out of like you must be gay, they're talking about their own terror, right? And I've experienced that so many times with with friends, with men I grew up with, with clients, and I, I find that to be really just like an important thing to always reflect on the thing that someone's propelling at you. It's like you're invoking parts of them they haven't sat with yet absolutely absolutely and and you know it's funny because i was a a personal trainer in chelsea for 10 years and the demographic i want to say at the gym was 90 percent gay um maybe 80 percent uh gay men 10 percent gay women but it was a, a predominantly gay gym here I am in, in my late 30s into early 40s. People, aren't you worried about working there? Why? There's so many gay people there. And? You know what I mean? Um, there's a lot of white people there, too. Am I going to become white by proxy? I mean, well, how, does, how does this work? How does this work? Is, does it rub off? You know what I mean? It, as men, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of societal... Uh, programming unfortunately that we have to kind of get rid of and unfortunately we are taught to not trust other men and it's unfortunate it's really unfortunate especially with everything going on we have to we have to get off that yeah yeah danny thank you for that todd danny you're raising your hand go ahead yeah, just just briefly. Um, yeah, this this kind of fear of rubbing off. You know, it's. Uh, I've, I had that those same kind of things too. Aren't you scared of that? You know, of, that you'll be like that or you know turn like that. And 
and Todd was talking there about the trust as well. It's like the trust, you know, the fear of men, but it's also the the fear of ourselves, right? I think like if you if you're a man, and most I'm sure if most men could if they could admit this would say that they have this sensitive, loving kind of maybe may not call it feminine, but just the soft soft side, soft right, soft side. They know that exists within them, and these men that are maybe saying, "Why are you hanging with these gay men?" are worried maybe that they'll have to then that will be maybe become integrated or become exposed in them because they they're already thinking to themselves, "I'm not really this masculine John Wayne, whatever whatever stereotype you know person I am that I'm making out to be, so I'm kind of scared that you're going to see this." other side of me that may that may or may not have some attraction to men or not you know I, i'm not a, a, a gay man but I've, i'm consistently be attracted to men i've certainly been uh, you know had moments where i thought oh you know this person is beautiful and and you know in that way but so i i the fear of oneself the one's one's own you know feminine or one's own sort of like or maybe just the fear of confusion that we have we don't know what that means. So that's what came up for me when Todd was talking. So I want to keep you for a minute because I was going to ask the yeah. second round of your personal stories around like the integration. You know, yeah. what some people call the breakthrough, I call the integration. Yeah. And so what you were just saying about, I love when you were saying like, when you said that John Wayne, you know, I always saw that as like cinematic drag kings. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like this this one percent aspect of what a man is, as if they're that all the time. <laughs> and we really we really believe that that's what we are and we're supposed to be all the time. And it's exhausting to keep that up. And that's what you know then gets called toxic masculinity. But um, so you know, when you were saying that, I was thinking, oh yeah, you know, that that's really that's the picture we got especially, in a, I mean, I can speak for a, as an American, like growing up in America, that was the image everywhere. And so I'm curious, I want to hear from all of you, starting with Danny, like what, what happened in your life? And some of you already said a little bit of it, but what happened that really said, okay, time to integrate these parts? And how did you integrate them? Or how are you integrating them? Mm. Yeah, um... Well, it's interesting because I was listening to Michael and Todd talk about these younger friends in which they were very, very kind of emotionally connected to. And I had a friend too. I was around 11 years old and we were very emotionally connected. And um, we would talk about things that I think would be really healthy for men of that, boys of that age to talk about. And we were talking about our penises. We were talking about puberty. We were talking about things like this, our bodies, because it was, you know, like we probably didn't have a place otherwise else curious right without answers but just so curious and then um further down you know the line like we were rejected by the group and we he had to make a decision the group of friends or me and he he was kind of you know that age the group was more important uh so but to bring it back to like my breakthrough then when sort of four years or so ago right before my son was born which was really the trigger for me seeing my father my father grief and and just getting connected to that um i i i i uh, met a man uh who became my mentor and the similarities really now reflecting on between that younger 11 year old relationship where we got to talk about things and the similarity between what i needed at that age to 
to start to integrate some of these parts of me were so similar. Like I was, we were just talking about our fathers. We were talking about being men. We were talking about this, just all our emotions and our feelings about men. And, um, and of course with my history of, with my father, I started to put him in this pedestal of father-like figure. And I, I started to get angry at him. Like I did other men. I started to have, um, just like want to pull away, wanted to hurt him, you know, just like, like, like hurt him by pulling away and so forth. So, but fortunately we were able to talk about it. I actually said, I want to, I really, I'm angry. You're right. I've got no reason, no, no reason to be. I'm so, I'm not angry. And I don't know why he was like, he had his own fatherly trauma that he'd healed from. He was like, of course you do. Of course you want to be angry at me. Of course, like you see me as his father. I'm, I'm telling you how amazing you are and I'm loving you, you know, basically. Um, so we were just kind of going through, um, yeah, and just I'm just kind of made some notes because I wanted to make sure I hit some points. But um, so, yeah, just being able to talk through that and him not rejecting me was so amazing, um, so healing for me. Um, and at the same time, my wife was heavily pregnant and my son, I didn't know, we didn't know the sex of our child at that time. And I convinced myself it was going to be a girl. Like I just convinced that every every spiritual person we knew said it was going to be a girl. And as soon as they said that, I was like, okay, we're done. Like it's a girl, right? And I was like, I, I, I denial. So Oliver was born, and I was given the gift of telling my wife like what the sex of the child was. And I turned like kind of I was at the head of the bed, and I went to where Oliver was lying on her stomach, and I saw his testicles and his penis. And I was like, I went back as though to say it's a girl. And I, I had to take a second look. And it's like, it's a boy. I, I was so in denial that I was going to have a boy because I didn't, the pain, the part of the child in me. Um, yeah. So anyway, so we had this, the boy and, and then um, about a week later, it was early morning. He was needed a diaper change and he was crying on the, on the changing mat. And, I was tired, obviously, and fatigued and all that stuff. But I, I was like just looking at him going, crying. He was crying, crying. I was like, I had this like feeling of like real hatred towards him. It was a very split second. Like, you kind of disgust me, kind of a thought. And then it's like snap back into it. It's like, you don't, well, clearly that's not right. Changed him, but then reflected on that. And that kind of really led me on this path to realizing that day dot my father had seen me the same way and and i don't know for sure but it felt like the energetically that the in an energetic exchange of that kind had happened and he'd not been able to reconcile it like and i was like i don't want to do that i don't want to be that father i don't want to do that for, for my boy um and it just led me continuing to to explore this and to see this um and just to kind of to to finish up that continued to be a struggle to be a father, continued to be a struggle to be his father and to be with myself and be with him. It was like, be with him, be with my father, be with my child. The same thing, the same struggle. Um, and I would probably say a, a two years into two years ago, so two years after he was born, to kind of continue asking this question of the father and man and struggles with man, um, I just realized I was in the kitchen just like washing the dishes, just as you do when you kind of separate, you're separating yourself. And um, I was like, oh, I'm never going to get what I want from my father. 
I'm never going to get what I want from the specific person, the specific way that I want. It's gone. It's done. I can't have that. And, and I'm again emotional thinking about it, but I was just like, I just broke down. It was this visceral yearning was just like, you can't have that. You'll never get that. Um, and it, it was just, it just, and in that moment, I cried like a child. Like I cried like a child for, I don't know how long, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And um, it was just the most healing thing I've ever had. And from that moment, I, I have not had the same energy around men or, or men that have this certain energy. And my friendships, I've not felt like I needed to abandon or be abandoned by men. I've not, you know, I've not had to like, reject them before they reject me people don't my friends long-time friends who who have had like this fatherly figure to me or, or just like male men men that i love basically men that i love right to not necessarily say men but men that i love i don't have to re- reject them before they reject me anymore um so that was that was uh that was yeah that's it that's so powerful i, I so beautiful um i just want to feel it for a minute because it's really nice Because you're speaking to your experience of essentially, you know, integrating intergenerational trauma. And there's this like, like when you say energetic, you know, there's this energetic lineage in the nervous system that says like, men will hurt you. So walk away first. It's like a trauma retention. It's a reflex. And I love, I love that you had a boy, like what a, what a cosmic joke and healing, right? It's like so good because I, I've some of my most touching work I've ever experienced is with men that have the exact experience you talked about with your father, um, or even more elevated if it was extremely abusive, but that the, there wasn't that affection. There was like a withdrawal, and then they have this boy, and they have no idea how to be affectionate with this little man, right? And it's so powerful because they're seeing them, they're in their father's bodies in that moment. Like when you said, I'm seeing him the way my father saw me, that's the piece that there's so much wisdom in. Like, oh, that's how it felt for my, this is how it felt for my dad. And then what I love for that, I don't know if it went, you'll have to tell me if it was chronological like that. Um, Did that happen? And then it was the experience of realizing you'll never have that relationship with your dad? Is that how it was? Or was it the other one first? It, yeah, so that happened first, and then it wasn't until a while after that, I say 18 months later, when I'd created space in my life, I think, and, and gotten out of a, a work situation that was, there's lots of areas in which there was stress, and then I think at that point, the healing was, I was opened up for that. And mm. um, yeah, so it was definitely, yeah, the, the moment with my son on the changing table, then afterwards, the, the experience, yeah. Because that's important for me because um, that's been my personal experience and with the the men I've worked with, where there's this moment of standing in their own father's body, like you had expressed, like seeing, oh, that's how my dad felt. That that was me. And that somatic empathy, in my experience, helps you realize oh, okay, like that's, that's the person I'm trying to get love from. Impossible. Like I'll get it in one way, but the the idea of how I'm going to get it will never happen. And when you said that that finally hit you, like you experienced it and that grief in that moment, that's like finally 
becoming friends with reality. And I find that whenever we become friends with reality, everything shifts. And like what Michael was saying earlier, like when an awakening occurs, you lose the constructs of identity and such that you thought were just the absolute truth. And you did in that moment. This construct of reality of what could be with your father died in that moment for you to create that space in your body to build capacity to be the father for yourself and for your son that you didn't have. And it's so gorgeous to me. Um, thank you. That's, that's beautiful, Danny. Michael, I, I want to hear your story of integration. I know, I know the Broadway was the moment your body remembered, but I want like the, the nitty gritty. <laughs> the nitty gritty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hmm. I was trying to remember. I can just I can remember being in this this life coaching circle, right? We would have weekends, and there was twenty people, and uh, I can't remember exactly what it was right now, but just it was it was something around just being loved, like, uh, and I think it was particularly by the guy that would run it, that was the lead trainer. Who's a man named Christopher McAuliffe. I love him to death. Um, and uh, so he, I, I was yelling something and then he just like sat down and he said, all right, what you're going to do is you're going to look each person in the eyes and you're just going to do this silently. And I was doing it and this body shaking, tears are welling up and going through. And then I got to the, the guy that had brought me in, Taylor, who I'm still friends with this, to this day, and I see him and just <laughs> break down, like heart explodes, just weeping and uncontrollably and just feeling uh, uh, relaxed, relaxed, like the body felt relaxed, just finally, like some guard let down, the armor broke, uh, the armor guarding the heart. And that that was... That was the the opening moment, you know, where like there's there's love out there. There's 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 something something greater than what I've experienced, and uh, and I was hooked from that moment, or <laughs> the heart was hooked from that moment, and uh, and I, I I kind of think of myself like a dog chasing a car sometimes. Like you're just you just it's just what Michael does, he just <laughs> chases, chases the things he loves, you know, like, and uh, f follow what's alive. And so, um, you know, it, it was those relationships, it was, it was coaching, it was being with people, serving people. Uh, and the, the beauty that came with that, like, oh, my God, like, for, for an hour with a session, like all of my problems go away. Like <laughs> there's no focus on, on me and, and just giving. It's so good to give. Like, what is this like weird thing that we call giving? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but just feeling so, so good to, to be of service. And then with the music, like somatically, so, so Broadway, that first show, it it was like awe. Awe is the word I would use. And wonder, you know, these these things that we felt or I felt as a child all the time uh, were returned to me. And so just an expansive feeling, right, in the body, an expansiveness and, and a, a, a vibrating quality, like alive, just everything's like flowing, flowing and profoundly present, 
profoundly present. Again, like the thoughts are gone. It's just in the moment with this happening. And and I just f- feel such an incredible joy with it. Joy, just joy, 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 pure joy. And and that was what led me into singing was like some something's here. And uh, <laughs> and there was this mix of of just extreme joy and then shame. <laughs> shame, shame, like opening and constricting as the pro opening and constricting and opening and constricting and um and I and I'll tell you like so so the first you know three years three years or so of this exploration um it, it was through coaching and there's all you know so much love and all this stuff but there's a very strong focus on mental like let's break this down mentally and like you know analyze you and, and what's happening and uh, that's useful but sh- sh- I was going to say shit. Shit really started to change <laughs> when uh, I went into the body and I f- met my first uh, somatic therapist, which was trained in Hakomi. And she, <laughs> so here I am thinking like I know something about life <laughs> and myself. And she just says, why don't you quiet down for a bit? And, you know, I was talking and feel what's happening in your body. And I went in and I started telling her what was happening. And then my body started convulsing and shaking and like, uh, 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 you know, just while. And I'm like, what's happening to me? <laughs> I specifically remember yelling that. <laughs> uh, and, and anyways, we, we finished up and she's like, so, uh, you know, do you, do you want to work? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to work with you. Yes. Whatever it is. Like, yes. And she's like, I didn't tell you the price. And I'm like, that's all right. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) so since then it's been, you know, moving deeper into the felt experience of life and out of the mind. And, uh, this, this is the greatest challenge I, I, I feel I face and, and most humans face is like, how do we shift our, our awareness and attention out of that space where we're conditioned to. And, you know, when, when, when I'm singing and performing, right. And it's, um, there's so much happening in my body all the time. And, uh, I never know what's going to happen. You know, what, what trauma is going to get kicked up and, uh, you know, alive to be met and felt and digested and no idea, but it's, it's fun. <laughs> that's so beautiful um you know when you were saying like joy shame mm-hmm. open constrict mm-hmm. and i was thinking of when danny earlier was talking about capacity like his father didn't have capacity and in somatic work it's all about capacity it's all about like how much capacity does my body have and so I just wanted to speak to that for a moment because when you say the joy shame, like joy is so expansive and we're all talking about these really early childhood experiences where expansiveness or expansion for a boy was like not very safe necessarily or got shut down very quickly or you were gay or, you know, all these things. Um, So to, to understand how expansion can be overcoupled with threat, you know, and it takes time to let the, like, to just have ecstasy in the expansion without the constriction following it. 
And when you were saying about the felt experience, the felt sense versus the mind, you know, when you can really practice the felt sense of living, you lose all the archetypes. Like they're gone. Like there is no masculine. There is no feminine. It's just like energy that moves unnamed. And I find that to be so powerful. And I just wonder if that's your experience as well. Yeah. Uh, definitely. <laughs> you, know, you know, if you're, you're floating in the sea of now, there's just, there's just energy. That's it. And, and then, you know, it's, it's interesting talking about masculine feminine, which is this polarity that exists. And oh, the teacher that I, I study most with talks about it and yin and yang. And just getting out of the conditioning, because it's still there, like running all the time of this is masculine, this is feminine, man, woman. And, and so yin and yang, and, and that's been useful for me to start to notice that energy uh, in nature too, which I know you're big into. <laughs> but, but like, you know, yang is the banks of the river and yin is the flow. And like, where else does that show up in life, right? Uh, another energetic thing that you, you pointed to that, that, um, you know, we, we can play with a little bit, but like, I, I think of, of yin as the, the decomposition. So the flower blooms and then in the winter it, it dies and decomposes. And, and that's a part of the process in our culture that is just bastardized. Like you are not allowed to rest. You are not allowed to die. You're not allowed to curl into a ball and grieve, which is still one of my favorite practices. <laughs> I really love that because um, well, I love I love the example of the banks of the river. First of all, because if we all if we all like visualize that, we see this like stolid inflexibility, and then we see this like moving force and how the two are so beautifully symbiotic together. Like one couldn't exist without the other. You see that in your own body because your body is the earth. So you see your own blood, you see your own bones, you see your own muscles, and you lose these ideas of masculine and feminine. You just see direction, right? You just see like, how does it move versus what does it mean? And I think if I imagine myself, like when you said the curling and the ball grieving is one of your favorites, like when I go into healing any old trauma that suddenly comes up through my body, that's the one thing I do is I, I, I'm, I walk with that child and I let them see their own body and their experiences as energy moving versus meaning. So instead of you were bullied, it's like, okay, we see the energy coming out of the boys and we see you contracting from it. And we just look at it that way. And it's just like watching nature. It's actually quite beautiful, which is kind of strange to say. But it's so lovely when you lose that duality. Mm -hmm. um, so I really appreciate that piece. That's really beautiful. Thanks, Michael. Yeah. That's nice. Todd, Todd, I want to hear what's going on. <laughs> what's going on for you? What are you thinking about? I mean, just to remind you, because it's been a little while, the question, you know, how did you, how do you integrate these parts of you to stay balanced? It, well, uh, <clears throat> first of all, Danny, Michael, I loved your stories. Uh, thank you for sharing. Those were amazing. And I, thank you, uh, Luis, for the reminder, because I, I actually got lost in their stories. They're just, they're so great. Um, how am I integrating it? It's a good question. Uh, I'm trying to find the answer to that at this particular moment in time. And perhaps 
that is the beauty of this forum. Uh, listening to Danny and Michael's stories actually took me back to a point where I tried to find balance, where I did find balance. Uh, as I had mentioned, I was a personal trainer uh, for about 10 to 12 years. And the company I worked for, they wanted people to pick specialties. So you had to have a, a specialty type of training if you know a potential client came in and they wanted something uh, specific. So again, it's the gym culture. It's very man and male and masculine and red meat. It's, it's all of that, you know? So uh, all of my, my uh, comrades and contemporaries, they were doing things like boxing, and CrossFit and, uh, you know, whatever. So I came into the gym with uh, fighting certifications, certifications from Japan, uh, boxing certifications. I had all of that. So they said, well, you're a shoe-in. You can, you know, just just do that. And I said, actually, I'm going to do pre- and postnatal. So everyone looked at me like I was insane. And I began studying. I began studying under a doula. Um, and I was certified in maternal fitness. And at that time, I was really angry. I, it was a very angry point in my life. And I felt instinctively this would bring me peace. This would help me find balance. You know, you think when, when there is balance in martial arts and stuff like that, but when it comes to self-defense, it's brutal. It is very brutal. It is meant for you to survive. There's beauty in the technique, but the end result is not necessarily beautiful. So I had said to myself, I know thousands of ways to end a life and there is absolutely nothing i can do to bring life forward other than provide seed that i still cannot manifest that in the way that the most high the divine or whatever your esoteric belief is there is no way i can do that so this is divine for me to be able to help a mother bring this child forth. Um, and that's what I did. I studied maternal fitness. I learned uh, holistic training and practices to help uh, prepare mothers for the day, um, bring the baby out, get them in shape afterward. I did, the, uh, I did a holistic certification and I also did like um, a more scientific Certification. I have two certifications in that because some people they they appreciate the holistic approach, which is what appeals to me. But then you have people that want you know numbers, and I understand that too. It's more of a um, scientific based approach, you know, where where results are, are quantifiable as as much as they can be, you know. But um, it was it was very interesting to me because one of my clients his wife and, and he kind of inspired me he and his wife were trying to have a child 
And unfortunately, she had miscarried about three or four times. And, you know, needless to say, they were really distraught. And it, it kind of got me thinking, wow, that that's something else, you know. And then he overheard me speaking to another client and he pulled me aside one day and said, um, did I hear you correctly that you do, you know, pre and post natal? I said, yeah. He said, well, you know, my wife is, is in her first trimester and he told me his story and he said, Todd, I, I trust you because at this point I helped him lose 70 pounds. You know what I mean? So he, I, I really kind of changed his life. And he said, can, can my wife come in and talk to you? I said, of course. You know, so she came in, we talked about it. I said, look, you know, naturally I, I feel for you. I'll pray for you. I can't guarantee anything. The only thing I can guarantee you is that I'll give you 100%. You know what I mean? I'll give you everything I have and good energy and vibes. And we just go from there. And uh, she carried their first child to term. And she ended up staying with me and bringing two more kids into the world. So for me, that helped me achieve the balance that I really so desperately needed and my clients often said, you know, you changed my life. To which my response is, yeah, but you saved mine. That is so special to me that you, you would find a way as a man to support life coming into the world. Like when you said, I, you know, I can give my seed like that's that was you know the biological function, but this this much more nuanced um, avant garde concept as a male trainer to say, hmm, there's all these things I can do. Like there's there's the paleo worlds and there's these really like what what do they call like buzz buzz words or whatever. There are these things I can attach to to get a lot of clients, but like my body is telling me I want to nurture life to come into the world. I want to nurture women. That's so gorgeous to me. That's like such a great example of how to like um, invoke that in yourself as a man when your biology is, you know, uh, limited to actually birth a child yourself, but how to invoke that ability, you know, for, for um, I don't, I'm even lost with the words. I just feel it. It feels so open and nice. It's so beautiful, Todd. You know, this is this is my time where I have to just ask us all and everyone listening just to like take a breath and just kind of notice what you're feeling in your body. I mean, it's amazing how every time one of you share, I see myself. Like, uh, like when you said you were thinking of what to say and Danny and Michael brought you to the, that, that point of your life. It's like the gift of bringing someone's body to a place of healing just through sharing and experience is so like never stops never stops blowing my mind like it always amazes me um and that's why i selfishly do this podcast <laughs> you know i could just go on instagram all day and like make videos but i'm so tired of hearing myself talk i'm like i get so inspired by other people's stories i'm like Oh, and now I have an excuse to invite really interesting people to talk to me all day. <laughs> you know? So, first, I want to say thank you, three men, for coming here 
and sharing your beautiful, beautiful stories and wisdom. Like God, people are really going to get a lot out of this. Um, and as we close, if there's any like final words, I'm not going to call on anybody, but just to feel like notice. And I would really ask for like final words. So not stories. I don't want to open anything back up because I feel like we're at this really great landing. But if there's like a little piece of wisdom or even a question for people to ponder, anything you want to leave me, yourselves, or anyone with, feel free to raise your hand. I would love to hear. But there's no pressure either. Yeah, Michael first. Go ahead. So in in some uh, ancient shamanic societies, uh, when you would go to the shaman you were sick, they would ask you one of four questions. Uh, when... One was, when did you stop singing? Uh, two was, when did you stop dancing? Uh, three was, when did you stop being amazed and wonder by stories? And four was, when did you stop talking to spirit or God? <laughs> so those are my closing remarks. <laughs> That's really great. Great, great closing remarks, Michael. Danny, you'd like to go next. Sure, I just wanted to to say thank you to you, Luis, and Michael and Todd. Just beautiful to be here. Um, yeah, I just want to, I guess, something that's been important to me is I when I started to embrace the the, the softer, less typical male side of me. I almost felt like I needed to reject some of the other parts of me that were more, you know, stereotypically male, like the, the, the sports or the, the other parts, right. The physical, the physical stuff that I don't know if that's any more male or female than, than it's just more stereotypical, but so these things are, I mean, it's it's the balance, right. It's the balance of these things. So um, I think for me, it's last remarks is that I integrate in all of these things that are me um, as a male and maybe in, in, the hope, in the hope that I don't even need to call it that they're male or they're just me, they're just what I am. And don't want, I haven't, I felt I need to reject those parts, but now I know that I don't need to. Like, I can be soft and hard and all these things, and it, it makes me who I am and it makes me a man if that's what I want to call myself, um, if that's what it could, you know, all those things are male, basically. Um, and that's just what I want to say. And thank you again. Mm. Thank you for that. I think it's really important. It's really beautiful. It's really beautiful because it's when you're finding that early balance, you then you become too hyper, you know, anti-masculine. So it's really good to get to that middle ground. It's beautiful. Room for all to work through your body. Todd, did you want to share any last remarks? Oh yeah, go for it. Uh, first of all, I wanted to thank uh, the three of you. This has been uh, an extremely enjoyable experience and. Hopefully we can do this again. Um, I wanted to say that who we are today is not who we'll be tomorrow, but whoever we are, we are perfect. And we are exactly what the universe, the most high, the divine wants us to be. You are important and necessary be who you are thank you todd that's so beautiful
For more information on the guests today, you can look in my episode details and you'll find links toward their work and them. I hope you enjoyed this this incredible session and I hope you take good care. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. My question for you is, where do you feel the episode? Take a breath and just notice. What's your body doing right now? Sit with it. Let it speak to you. And let whatever comes up, come up. And your only job is to listen. For all the wisdom you need is right inside of you. For more information on my work, including my online courses and healing circles, please visit holisticlifenavigation.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook, where I share weekly philosophies and resources to help you release stress and trauma from your body so that you can live a happier life. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next time. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give in to mindlessly. But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving, as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.